fact, there will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 27 on AFI's top 100 list of American films, 1952's High Noon. High Noon. Ethan, I've just been down in Texas someplace, but I've returned in order to shoot the marshal. <gasps> am I the marshal? Well, you were yesterday but then you picked it back up and your replacement hasn't come yet so you can't run off with grace kelly just yet Uh, grace kelly though she's a babe and she's got that transatlantic accent like katherine hepburn who you know i love yep i sure do but (laughs) perhaps we should jump into some plot synopsis before we dig into this film yeah uh, this is a pretty straightforward plot. High Noon is the story of Will Kane, the Marshal of Haleyville, a small town in the American West. I think it's supposed to be New Mexico. As the film opens, Kane marries his Quaker wife, Amy. The two plan to leave town and open a store elsewhere while they raise a family. However, just as Kane is readying to leave, he learns that newly freed criminal Frank Miller will return to town on the 12 o'clock train. Kane, who put Miller away, decides that he cannot flee but must stay and face Miller, who has assembled a gang of three men at the train station. The film follows in real time the lead-up to Miller's arrival. Kane soon finds that most everyone in town would rather he leave instead of staying to fight, including his new wife Amy. Kane finds himself unable to raise a posse and realizes that he will have to face the gang alone. The men arrive and engage in a lengthy gunfight with Kane doing surprisingly well against the men. Eventually, he is trapped in a barn that Miller tries to burn down, but Kane escapes with the horses contained inside. Amy realizes that she can't leave her new husband and runs off the train before it departs. During the firefight, she finds herself in the sheriff's office, or I guess the marshal's office, where a gun is handy and saves Kane by killing Miller's last gang member, leaving only Miller. However, Miller's able to capture Amy and uses her as a human shield to draw out Kane. Before Miller can shoot Kane, Amy attacks Miller's face, giving Kane the opportunity he needs to shoot and kill Miller. The townspeople emerge from hiding and gather around the couple as Kane removes and discards his star, and the married couple leaves town. Grace Kelly really kicks some ass toward the end of this film, huh? Grace Kelly becomes the surprising... Uh, hero of the story she starts out having really no character whatsoever except that we know she's quaker and against violence of all kinds she likes oats probably as a quaker oh my god (laughs) and those little crunch bars you know what i'm talking about those little granola bars they're really good we later learn through her conversation with mrs ramirez that she saw her brother die and her father maybe she didn't see him die but she saw her brother die and her father also died from violence She said they were on the side of good, they were on the side of right, but still still died. So she became a Quaker, and now her new husband, having renounced and then picked back up his role as marshal, is going back into combat, and she just can't handle to see that happen again. So forsakes that religion and shoots a man dead. Right, because Quakers, of course, are uh, famously uh, anti-violence. They are pacifists. Right, and so it's important to note that she's the only person, really, that comes to Will Kane's aid in his hour of need. Yes, there are several people that 
uh, offer their help to him, but they are, uh, there's a young boy who's like 14. There's an old drunk guy with an eye patch who's not very helpful. Um, most everybody else, uh, either tells him to get out of town or tells him they can't help because they have family obligations or what have you, right? The judge leaves town. Uh, who else leaves town? Doesn't somebody else leave? I don't know. Um, but yeah, basically everybody sort of says, ah, we don't really want to do this. And some are openly hostile to him. Yes. His old deputy shrugs him off, thinks he's jealous of him having a relationship with his former girlfriend, Mrs. Ramirez. Yes. And it's pretty heavily implied that she was, was or is a prostitute. Yeah, I think I think it's the implication that she's a sex worker and that because she lives in the hotel. People keep saying like, oh, my wife didn't want me working with you. And she gives him stern looks and he's like, but, you know, you always treated me right and things like that. Yeah, she seems to be. And she, of course, is, uh, I guess, Mexican-American or Mexican. She's she's come. I mean, this I guess they're in uh, New Mexico, which may still be a territory at the time. So maybe she's just Mexican. Yeah, she she identifies herself as a Mexican woman. Yeah, she so she's sort of an outsider figure. First of all, by the fact that perhaps she's a sex worker, probably I think it's pretty heavily implied. She's othered, right? She's the Mexican lady. She's also uh, set up as sort of um, the uh, foil to Amy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Amy is, I mean, it's Grace Kelly. She's blonde and pale skinned and uh, Grace Kelly, right? Uh, whereas Mrs. Ramirez is uh, dark haired um darker skinned uh obviously has a uh is more worldwise right yes definitely more more worldwise and she has money and she's walking away with at least a thousand more for having sold her store in her escape she knows kind of what's up she so she's an interesting character that doesn't necessarily like i obviously i didn't pull her up in the in the plot synopsis, but she's actually a very important character she is the one too that gives amy a speech about how you know, if Kane were if Kane were my man, I would stick around and fight with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what sort of spurs Amy to get off the the train, right, and go help out her new husband. Yeah, and this actually leads me to my pivotal scene, which is not the Ramirez Amy conversation as you might think, but I think it is tied into this. So I'll wrap back around like that in a second. But it's actually the conversation Kane has with Martin. The former marshal, I guess the one he took over for mm-hmm. way back in the day. He goes to Martin and says, hey, can I count on you? And Martin's like, no, because <laughs> I'm too old and I'm a liability. And I know the kind of man you are. And you would try to protect me and you'd get yourself killed. And the odds are already stacked against you. And he also, I think more importantly, talks about the composition of the town and just how they have to work themselves up to law and order. Mm-hmm. And I think that says a lot about the thesis of this film. But let's go ahead and listen to this scene first. They sent a kid to find you. Didn't he come? He was here. You've been my friend all my life. You got me this job. You made him send for me. Ever since I was a kid, I, I wanted to be like you, Mark. You've been a lawman all your life. Yeah, yeah, all my life. It's a great life. You risk your skin catching killers, and the juries turn them loose so they can come back and shoot at you again. If you're honest, you're poor your whole life. 
And in the end, you wind up dying all alone on some dirty street. For what? For nothing. For a tin star. Listen, the judges left town, Harvey's quit, and I'm having trouble getting deputies. It figures. It's all happened too sudden. People got to talk themselves into law and order before they do anything about it. Maybe because down deep, they don't care. They just don't care. What'll I do, Mark? I was hoping you wouldn't come back. You know why I came back. Not to commit suicide. Sometimes, sometimes prison changes a man. Not him. This is all planned. That's why they're all here. Get out, Will. Get out. Will you come down to that depot with me? No. You know how I feel about you, but I ain't going with you. Seems like a man with busted knuckles didn't need arthritis too, don't it? No, I couldn't do nothing for you. You'd be worried about me. You'd get yourself killed worrying about me. It's too one-sided like it is. So the reason I chose this, this conversation, the Ramirez-Amy conversation, and then the final moment where Kane takes his star off, throws it contemptuously on the ground mm -hmm. after all the townspeople have come out to like cheer him, is really telling. This is really about the failure of a town. Yeah. The action of the film, though there is a you know magnificent gunfight at the end that ranges through barns and town and everything like that, it's really about the failure of recruiting. He goes right. out there... Ask people. He's apparently the best marshal this town has ever had. Tries to get them on his side. Some people initially come over, find out they're going to be alone with him, and then back out because they're scared. Former deputy tries to start a fist fight with him in order to get him out of town, so he beats him up. The drunk offers his help, but Kane's like, no, no, go, go get a drink. I can't really use you. <laughs> so he's turning people away who are just not fit for this, who are deluded by grandeur or have the wrong interests in this fight and then he's rejected by pretty much everyone else i think most tellingly in the church scene mm -hmm. where people are kind of weighing it out the mayor gets up and says this glowing speech about him and says and that's why i want him to get the hell out of this town basically right mm -hmm. so this whole film is about this failure of this town to work themselves up at, to use martin's words to law and order and it comes down to the personal connections, right? It is Amy. It is Grace Kelly's character that comes and saves Kane, Gary Cooper's character. Yeah. And it's those two that ride off into the sunset, as it were, at the end through their strong personal bond that is not just affirmed by their marriage, but by something deeper now. Right. And it's this town that he has cleaned up and has made habitable, as people have said, that fails and that they have to leave behind. Yeah, it, it it's not and it's not even that he no longer has a place there. He he no longer wants to be a part of he's disgusted, right, by the town. And uh, there there is certainly a way to read this film as a champion of, you know, sort of rugged individualism, right? It is only the family unit, the nuclear family unit um that prevails, right? And when when you have too many people, right? When you have a um 
committee or or whatever. I mean, the, again, the church scene is a great example, like you said. Uh, when you get all these people in the group, then they have all these um, conflicting um, desires, motives, right? I mean, essentially, at the end of it, the, the, that church scene, they say, you know, we can't have a gunfight in this town because people are no people won't invest in it anymore. If people are getting shot in the streets, then no one's going to bring their their businesses here. I mean, they're motivated by money, right? Um, and not the fact that like there's this hardened criminal like they're so blinded by that. And and the same thing we see you know they're either blinded by greed or or cowardice as you pointed out or they just simply aren't actually able to or delusions of grandeur right with the little kid and perhaps the drunk guy yeah and it and it takes a single man and his wife right or I guess a single woman to bring them together and it's actually one of their early arguments after he decides to stay that he says I'm the same man with or without this pointing to the star of course right. so the idea of rugged individualism and the sort of straight line one walks as a person right as a character as a personality that this is your character right yeah so it's really grace kelly's character amy that changes throughout the film and that's why i think mm -hmm. you're right in saying that she's really the hero of this film by the end because kane is the same guy but his journey is a little bit different he is basically a stranger coming to town because it's a town he thought he knew, and the course of the film is him finding out he doesn't know this town at all. And, you know, it's interesting. I had a hard time throughout a lot of the film deciding whether or not he should stay or go. Um, I don't know if you had that same experience, but about half of the time I was like, what are you doing? Just go. Get out of there. What What's wrong with you? Everyone wants you gone. You know, so I, at times I was like, is this film trying to show us that there is a fault with this sort of rugged individualism, this desire to be a you know a man of principles, of course, I think the ending, um, you know, proves that to be wrong, right? Like he is the he does the right thing, I guess, right, and and kills these people and saves the town and his wife and himself. You know, I think he makes a particularly strong argument early on. It might even be in that same argument that he and his wife are having. Mm -hmm. His wife, she's 29 years younger than he is in this right. film. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, well, and that's, I mean, that's part of why I was kind of confused. I was like, are we meant to under, understand that he is, because he's, he's visibly pretty old. Uh, what's his name? Gary Cooper, maybe? He's visually pretty old. I mean, he's got to be in his 50s, if not his 60s. But that's pretty old for a marshal, especially if we're thinking about a Western, right? Like, the men he goes up against are pretty visually younger, so I, so I had a lot of time thinking, like, are we supposed to see him as a dinosaur, as a relic of something that's not real? Um, and I and I think the ending, again, I think the ending shows us that, no, he maybe he is the right person. He is right. He is vindicated to an extent, right? So his argument that he makes with Amy early on is that, look, this guy said he's going to kill me. We get that scene with the judge where he's pointed to the chair and says, I'll kill you. Well, came, I'll come back and I'll kill you. And which is pretty evocative, right? Because we don't see the main villain until the very end, although they do almost nothing with him. He's just kind of this <laughs> any other bad guy kind of thing. But he says, look, he's going to follow us to where we're going to go at our store, and we're not going to have any help there. Our best bet is to stick it out here, raise a posse, and just deal with it, right? So that was really persuasive logic to me. Yeah. Like, this guy's going to stop at nothing. You know he's bent on revenge, even though he tries to make the argument to Martin. 
well, prison changes people. Maybe he'll be reformed. And Martin's like, don't kid yourself. Not this guy. He's coming to kill you. Yeah. So maybe that's just Will trying to convince himself later in the film after things are not going his way. But initially, I think he's absolutely right. This guy's bent on killing you. Get all the people together and do away with it here and now because you're just going to have to keep running. So you face this problem now. You're going to have to face it later when you're of worse odds, basically. Right. Yeah. Again, I'm torn because, you know, I'm I at, at the beginning of the film, I'm with Grace Kelly. I'm like, let's get the fuck out of here. He's not going to find you. This is the American West. What is he going to do? Look you up in the phone book, you know? Um, but I think there is something to be said about, like, dealing with something rather than deferring problems, right? Uh, and in this case, it involves violence. Um I, yeah, I don't know. And I, and I think we are to understand that the townspeople are cowardly, right? That they, uh, they aren't thinking about what's, what's right and wrong here. And, and the, and so again, the sort of failure of the, of the justice system, right? High Noon points out that, you know, they, this, this awful criminal gets caught and sent up north to be hung and the, you know, the justice system fails. They don't hang him. They give him life in prison. Obviously, life in prison ends up being like, I don't know, a couple of years. And and then he comes back to terrorize the town again, right? So the justice system fails, which is why, you know, Kane has to rise up or the town should rise up behind him, right, to give us some, I guess, frontier justice, right? Well, it's not even that frontier justice, right? Because he lets the three other criminals hang around the train depot when he was much easier to ambush them, murder them, then wait for Frank Miller to get off the train, then murder him. But right. he does it by the book and waits it out. And they point that out in the film a few times, actually. And it is a, a case where he, he pops out and says, Miller, and they turn around and shoot at him. So he's justified in shooting back. Right. You're right. Because you know what? I actually thought about that. When that happened, that scene happened, I was like, why did he call that guy's name? And it, you, that's exactly what he did, to get them to shoot at him so that he could kill them. Yeah, so it's by the books. I mean, it's a technicality. He, we knew he was going to end up shooting this guy in any case, but at least he has the legal right to do so, I guess. <laughs> right, at that point. yeah. I mean, that's kind of shit, right? That gets us into a kind of a shady area, but you're right, right? Then he does become the one to. He gives them a chance, right? I guess to not try to shoot him in the face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no one can shoot in this film anyway, so it's a pretty good bet to just kind of hazard a conversation first because they're not going to hit you they're not going to hit you you know well and i also thought there was that moment where he went out there and i realized he didn't take a rifle with him he had all those rifles in that house and he's like no you know what i'm gonna take these little fucking stub-nosed six shooters pew 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 like are you an idiot take the rifle yeah that's a good point i'm not sure why there was no (laughs) rifle play here it would have been great have Grace Kelly up on a roof just sniping people with a rifle. Right, with her, to see Grace, yeah, to see Grace Kelly in a dress, you know, shooting people with a rifle. That would be the 2019 remake of this Yeah, She'd be absolutely. up there doing that. Right, she's going to hike up her, her skirt and, you know. Cut it up the side as they always do, right? It's like, right. I'm breaking gender roles and also becoming more sexy because that's coherent. <laughs> right. And she, of course, would have stiletto heels on as... Uh, all women do at all times, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, Ethan, I think it's probably time for our three questions. Yeah, let's do it. But first, let's talk about our sponsor. Sure. So let's get to our three questions, Ethan. What do we owe to this film? I think it's pretty straightforward to to say that we owe the, the plot of this film to this film because I, this is a plot... 
if you've never seen a cartoon or anything, I mean, you would have to live under a rock to not have seen some version of this um, in a video game or on a TV show or in uh, some other movie. You know what I mean? This idea mm-hmm. of like trying to get the town together, but the town won't come together. Uh, and, you know, the, there's the looming uh, presence of the, the villain showing up. I mean, this is, it's hackneyed to death to almost to the point where like, it's when you watch this film, you know what's going to happen. I didn't know the plot of this film, but I figured it out pretty quick because it's been this is a it's just been imitated so many times. The plot itself is pretty gamified, right? You need to go to all these places in a time, you know, time crunch, right. and try to collect as many people as you can to go fight the big final boss at the end, right? So right. there's something very recognizable about that. But it is very interesting that the runtime of the film or the the action in the film and the actual time the film takes to run roughly equivalent right yeah it's real time it happens in real time well you know i hesitate to say real time because it's not quite accurate but it's pretty close right yeah it we're we're meant to feel as though we are experiencing the same time as the characters right and that's supposed to increase the tension i sort of thought they looked at the clock way too much throughout the film <laughs> well i you know i i think that in a, in, a, in a few ways it did it did work right uh i think it does add to the ten- it's a little hokey now you know mm-hmm. 60 70 years later but you know i think it does have an effect right and and because as you pointed out we don't have a villain until the last like 10 minutes of this film um and when he shows up, he's kind of lackluster, but it doesn't really matter, right? Because it's not actually about him. It's about, you know, the sort of dread that that goes with that. And, 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 and a technological dread, right? Because the clocks are absolutely related to the train, right? Our understanding of time in the West is related to – we can thank the train system for it, right? The railways. Um, and this big technological thing shows up and the villain gets out, you know? Well, I happen to like the way the plot plays out. I think mm-hmm. there are some things that if I were behind the old director wheel, I'd change some things, you know? I, I think you need to have that villain become more important. Even though it's not really about them, we still set up a lot of dread, like you said, for this character. And so have him come out and, like, I don't know, burn a house and shoot somebody in the face would be at least a step in... Yeah, this guy actually has to be stopped. He's not something you can talk to. This is a force of nature. Yes, yeah, to show him is much more cruel. A force of nature is a great way to put it. I think maybe you're right. I think that a little bit of that would have gone a long way. I also think, though, that this film really, and I'm sort of creeping ahead here, but I'll try to restrain myself. I think this mechanism, the approximate time in the film and the action of the film being, you know, contiguous right these are supposed to be the same thing mm-hmm. i think that it's its main claim i think all the plot points are things that we have largely seen before i don't think we're really necessarily getting anything that departs from the conventions and tropes of the let's call it honest western we're not mm-hmm. in that you know butch cassidy sundance kid yes, wild yes. bunch we're not like trying to deconstruct the western yet here I mean, maybe in some small way with the betrayal of the town. Yeah. Well, and I think, in fact, too, that the um, the fact that all of the action in this film doesn't happen until the very end. I think this is our this is a this is a step towards the uh, I guess if, if what's the opposite of the honest Western, the uh, 
Call it the deconstructive Western. The deconstructive Western or the subversive Western, right? I think that this is maybe the one of the first steps into that, right? Because it's this isn't Shane, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where there is there is action throughout, even though you know this is, the story is roughly you know similar. It's not terribly di- different. Um, you know the tropes are there. The it plays into the genre conventions, but. But this one does. I think there's that deferment of action until the very end that that I think is it seems new. In some ways, it feels a lot like Unforgiven, which is also you know much lower on the list, right? But yes, clearly inspired by this film. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. Unforgiven is is almost the same movie. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it is. So, Ethan, let's jump to our second question. Yeah, does this film hold up? Uh, you know, I I think it's. It... <sighs> Because it's become so hackneyed, this plot, it doesn't hold up quite as well as it could. And I think that's only because it has been... So, there, there is almost nothing surprising in this film. Not because of its... Not, you know, not from its own merits or anything like that, but because we've seen this play out, right? We've seen this play out a million times. Uh, so that i think takes away some of the enjoyment some of the excitement some of the tension uh, you know that the film works really hard to build for us to to cultivate and since we're not largely deconstructing the western in this film you know kane and his wife are getting out at the end right that's never in doubt i think on top of that the film kind of drags in places i think the real-time approximation is pretty novel pretty neat for this film as we've talked about but i think some of the conversations just aren't really compelling i think the dialogue needs to be punched up some for like a modern audience i guess is to answer that question in that way yeah but i think it's it's still a tight narrative i just it doesn't quite flow as well as it would have in 1952 i think well and i think too there's cultural context that that is very easy for us not to get because in in a lot of ways this is this is about the red scare right and about like hollywood blacklisting um and if you don't know anything about that which i don't know very much at all i only really picked up on that because i read a little bit about this on the internet you know there, there's a cultural moment that we're outside of at this point um that i think for a modern audience it, it, a lot of people are going to miss it Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, yeah. because this is very much like um, that Arthur Miller play, The Crucible. Right. Which is all about, you know, McCarthyism and that sort of thing. And this is a, this is the sort of the same thing. Right. Kane is this guy who's been blacklisted uh, and no one will help him, even though it's the right thing to do. So, yeah, I think that hurts it as well. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting to note, since we're on the subject, Gary Cooper you know, was helping out people who were currently gray listed at the time. Mm-hmm. The character who plays the deputy, whose last name is Bridges because he's the father of Jeff and Bo Bridges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was not able to get work and Cooper I think recommended him for the role and then later, you know, repented having thought that, you know, the communists were trying to infiltrate Hollywood and Right. So he had somewhat of a complex relationship to that situation as well, which I think you can read nicely into that character, but since none of us are truly experts in it, all we can go off is our own viewing and our right. viewership as a modern audience, right? Yeah, and I think that this is a film that if it was made today would would be fairly political as well, right? It would have, it would, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's some Trump-era version of this film that could be made, right? 
I don't know exactly quite how, you know, so there, there's that sort of didactic sort of one-to-one thing. And also one of the, either the director or the producer or the writer, one of those three guys um, was also, I think, gray-listed or blacklisted at the time as well. So there's, there, yeah, there's a lot going on there that is easy to miss unless you really know a lot about that, which obviously we don't. <laughs> well, then I guess the only thing to ask is, do we care about this film? I mean, I think yes. I, I think that, you know, it's so influential. It's so, and I know we say this for every film, right? Or at least I do, right? Oh, it's been imitated. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, this one has been imitated and and rehashed to the point of like incomprehensibility. If if I hadn't known that this, uh, you know, was as old as it was and and was sort of known for the the progenitor of this story, you know, if I had just come across this movie on television or something. Uh, without the context of the AFI list, you know, I, I'd be like, look at this for- awful formulaic um, cowboy movie, right? Uh, because it, we've seen this a million, there's nothing new in this film, at, at least to us, right? Except for maybe the fact that Grace Kelly is is sort of the hero at the end. That was kind of surprising, right? Yeah, I think I agree with that partially, but I think maybe where I depart from that is, Personally, I find this film very evocative, right? I think the empty chair standing in for the awaited yeah. villain is very interesting. It it pulls at the imagination of the viewer. Yeah. I think the real time, while I admit it drags in places, I think that's a fun concept still. I think yeah. the way it's gamified speaks to a modern audience in that way. Yeah. And I think this can be updated in a way that would work better. But I think as it stands now... I think it's still interesting, right? I think it's still yeah. something people can get something from. And so we do have to care for what I think for its historical context, the fact that it's doing something that hadn't been done, but in light of how it holds up to 2019, I think that's where we see some of the drag there. But yeah, I think ultimately still care about it. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, this was overall a pretty enjoyable film. Um, you know, the, there's some really interesting shots, you know, the chair shot. It does some interesting stuff with, with the score and, the, and that ballad that plays underneath. There's that fantastic crane shot where you see that the entire town is empty and it's just, you know. And you can also see a lot of the buildings behind it, though, that are not the western town. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and of course, this whole thing with Grace Kelly at the end, right, where Grace Kelly becomes kind of the real hero of the story. Um, so, so I think that, you know, even aside from the sort of formulaic nature or whatever of this film, you're right. There are enough redeemable qualities and you know what? It's not very long, (laughs) thankfully. Um, so it's an enjoyable film. I, I did, you know, there have been a few films on this list that I would not care to see again and did not care to watch when I was watching them. This was not one of those films. Well, there you have it. We'll be back in two weeks with our next film on the AFI, which is Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And I don't know that I'm looking forward to that one. Next week, we'll return on Patreon, and I want to keep us in the Western. So we're going to do For a Few Dollars More, which is the second installment of the Man With No Name trilogy. We're not doing A Fistful of Dollars because we've basically already seen it with Yojimbo, as I have mentioned frequently on this podcast. So we'll return with that. But until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Pew 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 pew. Spoilers. That was my gunfight at the end. 
There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.